Welcome to Across the Pond, Marketing Transformed, a podcast that explores ways to transform your business and marketing strategy. Whether you're a rising star, entrepreneur, or experienced professional, a show packed with stories to inspire success and build a growth mindset for you and your company. Featuring global brand CMOs, transformation experts, and business founders, your co-hosts, Chris Lawson in London, UK, and Samuel Moni across the pond in Philadelphia, USA. Welcome to episode 27 of Across the Pond, Marketing Transformed. My name is Chris Lawson in London, UK, and I'm joined by Samuel Moni on the east coast of USA, Philadelphia. Say hi, Sam. Hey, Chris, how are you, sir? How has your week been? It's been great, actually. Yeah, lots of um, varied work going on at the moment. And uh, my uh, my daughter's uh, six weeks old now. So oh, wow. Keeping me up, but uh, yes. still brilliant. Is, it, is there a major change from six weeks to like four weeks? I'm sure probably parents scream at the, t- at the radio. Of course there's a big change. Yeah, but... well, yeah. well, Trish got her first smile the other day, so uh, oh. I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting for mine. Oh, but... okay. So daddy's not got a smile yet. Not yet. Not yet. But anyway, today we're going to talk about brand turnaround, Sam. Um, and uh, who, who comes to mind when we talk about brand turnarounds? Actually, actually, wait for that. I'm going to answer my own question. There. Um, I don't want you to... Well, hang on a minute. You can't ask and then t- tell me to shut up. I don't want you to cover the usual suspects that have been done to death. That means Apple, Netflix, Marvel, Lego, they're all off the table. Um, mm. But I do think we can learn a lot from brand turnarounds. What do you think? Yeah, okay. If we can't talk about those, raising the bar, let's make it a challenge and interesting for the listeners. Good, good. But I I think one of the things that strikes me is that you look at some of these brand turnarounds, some of them about timing, some of it is about securing an environment to help um, find extra support. Some of it's about taking an essence of an idea and flipping it. Um, Mm -hmm. And everything you've worked on might seem like good, but you might have to chuck most of it away and then look at things Mm. in a different way. And it was really interesting after listening um, to last week's show back and and hearing some of the comments. I was reading a Medium article by a guy called Lorenzo De Plano, um, who went from $100,000 debt to selling his company for $16 million by the time he was 25. So. Pretty wow. pretty impressive stuff there, um, wow. and it's, it's a good article. We should post the link. But uh, he has some great advice about what to do and what not to do on that entrepreneurial mm-hmm. journey, which ties into the the last two podcasts. It's it's a good read. But I thing that stood out for me was. He said, diversity is key. If everyone in your office is male and under 25, you're going to have a narrow outlook. Um, he also talked about the fact that you have to kill your ego. And, I, and that got me thinking, I wonder how many brands haven't come back from the edge of extinction because they refuse to kill their ego. And it might be the brands or it might be the CEO or someone in charge right. of a CNO. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so I thought a quick quiz, Sam, uh, just to start us off. Um, First question, which company was on the edge of bankruptcy, losing $1 billion a year mm. and is now the most valuable or at least the second most valuable company in the world? But clearly, you're not allowed to answer that one because that's Apple. And we said that we weren't going to talk about right. that. See, I was silent there, audience, listeners. I was silent for a reason because I was told I couldn't say it and then Chris said it. Yeah, good, good, good. Now, now this one a, is a completely left field. So which food chain, now this is an American food chain, I'm not actually familiar with it, made a successful comeback after killing four children? Any ideas, Sam? 
Go for it, Chris. Well, it's a it's a brand called Jack in the Box, and after eating contaminated hamburgers, um, I'm going to say allegedly because I've only checked this from one source, four children died and more than 175 people were hospitalised. But they now sell 554 million tacos a year in the US. Uh, so for me, I think that pretty much says anything is possible, Sam. Um, to to turn around a situation, and uh, I thought that we should look at brand turnarounds today and and see see where we get to. Yeah, every year we look in multiple industries and we do see those turnarounds. I'm thinking in food and the US brand Chipotle had a few health issues and turned that around and on a common regular basis the automobile brands that unfortunately they do have recalls they do have brand crises and they do manage to to repair their reputation so it's it's a big topic there chris and it happens on a frequent basis so it's hugely relevant to our audience and as you gave me those two examples of turnarounds there's one brand i can think of that i've just seen such a huge surge of love and respect for that is part and parcel of many childhoods globally and it's been so for a number of years i'm seeing more and more stories about barbie in the past few years than than ever before there's so much great commentary so much great narrative about that brand and it's as if the me too era was part of the catalyst to become relevant and current again the brand has taken multiple steps to show up in an empowering and inclusive and a cherished way it's working as of the end of 2019 in terms of sales sales grew three percent in the fourth quarter of 2019 actually grew nine percent overall in 2019 to 1.2 billion dollars the highest sales gross sales i've seen in over six years the the CEO, a, a guy called Enon Kreutz, he's on record saying, our purpose as a company is to empower the next generation to explore the wonder of childhood and reach their full potential. And you cannot imagine a better flag carrier for that purpose than Barbie in terms of promoting diversity and inclusion, empowering women and celebrating women as role models. And so what I love about Barbie is they're delivering on that agenda. They've, for example, introduced a gender-neutral doll. There's the Barbie Fashionistas line, the Barbie Wellness Collection, and a Judge Barbie. Mm. I really love the fact that they're serving up the new news in a very purposeful and relevant way. For example, launching new dolls to coincide with, with Women's History Month, for example, it's Inspiring Women Collection. So you've got Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Jean King, Florence Nightingale, alongside people like Sally Ride, who was a Challenger astronaut, and Rosa Parks. And I don't need to tell you more about no. Rosa Parks, hopefully. <laughs> there's there's also proof points, though. Of, I bring up Rosa Parks of truly engaging with Black culture in a real way. For example, for Black History Month, they've recently worked with a costume designer called Shona Tunney, Tunini, sorry, who recently worked on the Queen and Slim film, mm. which came out in 2020, at the end of 2019. And she outfitted a set of 10 Barbies in, in 10 different skin tones, body types and hairstyles, hairstyles with, with braids and finger waves and afros and more. So it was, these were black Barbies. These were black dolls and really representing the culture and the people in an authentic and a real way. There's a live action film in development featuring Margot Robbie. And yes, the Margot Robbie who's just played a DC action hero, Harley Quinn. So there's a, clearly an understanding of who to put in that role and to personify this brand and, and carry it forward to the next generation 
of kids. You know, I can imagine if you're in that organization, the sales organization, you're now telling completely different stories. Yes, pricing, promotions, are, displays are relevant, but you're actually talking about the symbolism and significance of representing women in an enlightened and empowering way. You've got characters and dolls who are truly global. You've got role models such as the Turkish windsurfing champion, and I'm going to probably not pronounce his name well, apologies, Kagla Kubat, uh, chef Hélène Daroz from France, Chinese actor Zhao Tongguan, British boxing champion Nicola Adams. You get the point here. Mm. They're actually covering the world and really representing women as as boxers, as chefs, as as astronauts, as, as windsurfers. So these aren't just male-dominated roles. Now they're showing women doing it as well. Yeah, uh- Good stuff there. That's a great story, actually. And and it seems strange now, doesn't it? You think back to the stereotype, one-dimensional product that was synonymous with sort of children's toys and, and how outdated that seems now when you mm. need a diverse approach. And and good to actually um, um, that they've, they've grasped that and then dealt with that rather than just see it go into non-existence. Well, but I'm, I'm going to raise your Barbie story and I'm going to talk uh, about a category, not a product. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so do you know do you know what is poised to make a massive comeback according to the hustle which I I love by the way it's a uh, it's an email newsletter which I'm I'm a, a avid reader of so yeah okay, Chris, waiting to hear here glass glass, glass? yeah glass good old okay. fashioned glass um glass makers are hoping that there's going to be a backlash which of course there is against a single use plastic and return old school bottles to the throne, in Hustle's own words, um, or at least to the, the top of a recycling heap. Mm. Um, now, plastic absolutely trashed um, glasses grip on the market back in 1975. 58% of all soda came in glass bottles, so all sort of fizzy soft drinks. Today, it's just 1% which is an amazing sort of decrease over that time period. Plastic, meanwhile, went from 0% to almost 33% in that same time period. Now, now clearly, today, plastic is practically taboo. Um, And uh, certainly in the UK, and I would would imagine that's the case over in the US as well. Um, So there may be an opportunity for glass makers here since their products... um, give longer shelf life and the bottles can be refilled and recycled time and time again. Mm, so mm. so you, you can absolutely see how that is an opportunity uh, to seize the initiative. But here's a rub, though, because the number of glass-making plants in the U.S., plummeted alongside the the decrease in demand for glass bottles and and they've Mm. decreased by 65% since 1983. And and I think that's a really, really important lesson here, that Mm. you have to line up not only your idea, but the logistics to take advantage of a trend. There are many ideas that go, do you know what, we need to change, or there's a great opportunity here, but actually what what goes on beneath the surface hasn't been lined up, and, and that's a good example. But if you are on the edge of extinction, what what do you do? 
Um, and and actually, sometimes it's about luck. Sometimes it's about being planned, isn't it, Sam? Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And as you're talking about that, Chris, and talking about glass, there's been a huge mindset shift in the past few months. And so if you're a brand or a company looking and observing in the sideline, if you're not taking action, planning, changing your supply chain, making efforts, you're going to be found out because as the market comes back to glass, if you're vested in plastic, then you're part of the problem, not part of the solution. And and if done well, glass is about recyclable and a durable product. I lived in Germany for a few years, about three or four years, and I recall from my time there that glass drinks bottles were essentially all recycled. The bottles would, would always look worn and used, but that was fine because that was the way things should be. That was the way things were. It wasn't perfect and pristine, but used and real. And it perhaps reflected older times of how you would reuse and recycle and just uh, 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 be okay with things not being pristine and perfect. And you brought up the 70s and 80s. And it reminds me that a tried and tested technique for succeeding, for turning around and, and bringing things back is to go for nostalgia. Now, I've worked on brands where, to be honest, the product lines have been a bit aging. There's been less or very limited investment. And well, you still have to hit your numbers as a marketer. You still have to be successful. It's a tough spot to be in. And one key way, hopefully links back to things we talked about on this show, is to change the benefit story. Change the story that you're telling consumers. I recall on the Kenmore brand, which is an appliance brand in the US, for those less familiar, we took a multi-pronged approach to turn nostalgia Turn it away from looking back at grandma's brand. This brand had been around for over 100 years. But let's turn it towards perhaps no place like home sentiment. We created a, a, a space called the Kenmore Live Studio, which is a community meeting space and content studio. And it was an experience of the brand where the product was able to prove to you that it wasn't what you perceive. We actually provoked people to take a closer look. And they often had to come up close to look at the, the badge and realize, wow, that's actually a Kenmore. They, they thought it was another brand. And we got them to think again about that American brand in a, in a new way. We went all in on content creation and created a little production house, kicking out some content, some good, some bad, but all <laughs> with the intention of slowly chipping away at old perceptions. And so the turnaround isn't just a one and done. You've got to, you've got to work at it. There was money I remember giving to a social media manager to to address customer service issues and um, get again to 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 help solve the business challenges and the real issues that consumers were, were facing. But look, the brand's since been sold off, and the parent company sees it has, has shrunk significantly. But there's still a brand that's over 100 years later. It's still in place. It's still winning. And we actually had an episode a few a few episodes ago, ago of episode 19 which talked a bit about this in terms of marketing mm. a remix recycle reuse what goes around comes around so check out that episode episode 19 if you want to take a, a deeper dive into this this area yeah good chow good chow um and in the late 90s there was a british shoemaker r griggs group that bought the rights of dr martin's shoes and boots or, or dms as as a they're more commonly known and uh, you know, not not direct messages. No, definitely not direct messages. Yeah, but you know, as as popular in the US as in the UK, I think Sam, mm. would you say? Yeah, Dr. Martins, uh, they're still a fashion brand that you see and they're credible and fashionable. Yeah, but in the late 90s, they started making modi modifications after they bought the, groups, um, bought the group and their sales decreased so much that many outlets were closed. Um, and then 
in 2004, it re-emerged again. And by 2012, there was a resurgence again, back to that episode of Remix, Recycle, Reuse, where we talk about fashion um, and these uh, trends come back around. But it was actually named as the eighth fastest growing company in, in Great Britain in, in 2012. Um, mm. It then subsequently got um, sold for £300 million, which um, okay. I'm Sounds like a a good amount. I'm presuming there was a nice, healthy profit there to a private equity group uh, called um, Pamira, a £30 billion group. And then, interestingly, since then, uh, there's been a rumbling of complaints, Mm. sometimes in the media, sometimes on sort of forums, about loss of quality and a change of production um, and and a change in standards of what you expect from your good old dm boot now now clearly uh dr martins deny this and and sometimes the important point is that this can be about perception rather than reality that old it was better in the old days mentality right, um, right. but but interestingly uh, out today only two percent of the shoes are manufactured in england with everything else moved to asia um and there's, there's complaints that they're not as robust as they once were and, that, and i think some of it may be quality and some of it may be about loss of that heritage as well but the uh, the bit which i think is is fascinating is that the chief exec um a man called kenny wilson uh, and he clearly rejects the, the allegation saying that they produce about 11 million shoes a year and they've got a really low rate of defects about 0.5 percent of the total um, and of course, they're trying to reflect on um, and look at customer feedback, everything you would expect him to be saying. But I don't think anyone cares about the 0.5% defect, Sam. I think what they really care about is the heritage, the fact that are they still made in the UK, and then that perception of whether the quality has changed or not. And a little secret, Sam, there's a um, company called so- um, Solivare, which is a mm-hmm. boot manufacturer in Northamptonshire, which took everyone from one of the factories when they moved all of the production from Asia, where, and they were a factory that were licensed to make DM boots. And they're now making boots with pretty much everyone from that factory. Um, and again, the social media rumblings is those those boots are great. Now, clearly, DMs are still a, a fashion icon and still doing well worldwide. Um, and the business probably did the right thing reducing their costs by by looking at operation but perhaps they didn't listen hard enough to their customers interesting point there sam yeah potentially they didn't actually chris so it, it, it's it's sometimes counterintuitive a major mistake i see when you think you're doing the right thing is to be so entrenched with the success and the momentum of the past and not constantly seeking dissenting voices to challenge you about what you should do in the future one key failure point that I see, Chris, as I think more about this, is regarding the metrics and the measurement. I read an excellent article from Think with Google on measurement, and there's sort of three blind spots and practices I often get into trouble when I point out that people are perhaps doing. Looking at the data in isolation is a key one, and not seeing the bigger picture. I've seen too many times the market's being defined in a way that excludes, well, basically the bad news. It masks the trend. But when you add in that segment that's different or you you include the people who would rather stream than go in store to rent a movie, well, you suddenly see that 
that segment is growing faster, growing the category. And that's where your customers are going. And obviously, I'm telling the story of the brand called Netflix. I don't think I was supposed to mention that. But anyway, versus mm-hmm. Blockbuster. I recall an, uh, another example of when it comes to measurement, I'm working on the Kenmore brand where the focus was on traditional ad effectiveness metrics and measures. And this new upstart called Ace Metrics came along and they told a different story. They were using ad uh, ad measurement and ad evaluation based on a panel of real people in real time. It was completely different to this set it and forget it mindset that we were using. And it was given different data, given different results, and there was resistance to this new measure. But it, it, looking back now, this real-time, real-people data was obviously completely in the right direction. So the point here is that too often the focus is on the what and not the why. And if I see another dashboard that's only full of quant numbers, I'm going to scream because rarely do those scorecards actually tell you the why. There's actually research that indicates trying to in, in, in address increased customer attrition by perhaps giving out lower pricing plans to customers to try and keep them, you actually may trigger the, those customers to start doing price comparisons and actually you'll accelerate them leaving your brand. So giving them more cheaper options might actually help them leave faster than what you intended. Did I just hear you say why not how, Sam? You've changed Okay, fair point, Chris. <laughs> Getting to insight is absolutely about the why. How matters, but getting to that real insight, you've got to ask why multiple times. Yeah. Often there's a superficial understanding of why the consumer buys. We're actually really bad at realizing the bias that's in our systems, in our decision-making, and the bias that often exists in marketing. There's a fab book on this by a guy called Richard Shotton. He's a Brit and he's written a book called The Choice Factory. And one of my favorite examples is the challenge of relying on claimed data versus observed data. So if you're to review Facebook and you look at Katy Perry fans, you'd actually assume that, well, most of her fans are female. And if you're selling concert tickets or selling products, you'd probably target female Katy Perry fans or females in general. But if you look at the streaming data for Katy Perry, you'll actually find that she's in the top 10 for men and women. It's just that women are more willing to claim they're fans of Katy Perry here. So again, the onus there is to explain the contradiction in the data and make a smart, savvy decision of what it means and factor that into the strategy you adopt. I think we're going to do a show on behavioral economics in the future. It's a growing and an insight-packed area. Yeah, and it plays such a role in so many different areas, pricing, user experience, and, uh, you know, sort of how psychology really has now merged with marketing. Interesting, I haven't checked, but it'd be fascinating to look at how many sort of academic courses now include marketing and behavioral economics and uh, and probably um, sort of science-based stuff as well. But, but Sam, I know time's getting on and I've got something I want to get to before we uh, finish. So, so do you want part two of my quiz? Let's go for it. Let's make it quick fire, Chris. All right. Yeah. Okay. Which well-known brand started off as a dating site? No clue. YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, eh? Which <laughs> cosmetic company started out as a bookseller? L'Oreal? Um, no, Avon. you got Avon in the States, haven't you, Sam? Yep. Yeah, we do. Yep. So they started out as a bookseller who attracted buyers with perfume samples before pivoting to launch a cosmetic company and a rather successful one of that. Um, Oh, here's a good one. Um, What was the first iteration of Twitter? Messaging company? Um, No, Twitter began as a podcasting platform before it pivoted. Um, And 
Uh, final, final question. Which company with a strap line, kiss a little longer, pivoted twice before becoming successful? Definitely a makeup company. Nope, definitely not. Wrigley Spearman Gun. Um, Started out as a soap company that gave away free baking powder, then pivoted to a baking powder company that gave away a free gum, and then pivoted again to focus (laughs) on the gum. Wow, lots of pivoting there, Chris, but it seems like that's just a fundamental part of the mindset of being a marketer is to be able to pivot. It's got to be in the DNA of most companies because it's so true from those examples you just shared. I think the point with all of these is that forget the business imperative. It starts with the ability to say, we got this wrong. I think there's a better opportunity out there. And, and also, back to the point we talked about cash flow as well. Imagine if Twitter had stuck with podcasting. It could have been um, struggling for the last 10 years and suddenly one goes, wow, that Twitter is ahead of his game, focused on podcasting if it managed to sort out the cash flow. So as a marketeer, starting out, the lesson has to be to be humble, I think. You know, even though you might put 100% of effort into a project or something for reasons out of your control or even within your control, you still need to be able to change path, often for the better, and give it 100% as well. So what you're describing, Chris, means that we require a outside-in mindset and not the other way around. Asking what does the customer care about and focusing on that and not what the brand or the company makes or caring about that more. The customer has to be at the center. I think Mm. the proof points from this are brands such as Always with their Like a Girl campaign and the Dove self-esteem project and the campaign for real beauty. And then the Barbie story that I was talking about earlier. And looking back now, it's crystal clear that all of those represent cultural and societal shifts that brands have to be aware of and have to meet. And if they choose not to, then they're going to become obsolete. Simply put, you either shift to reflect the values of today or you hold on to what worked in the past, but the market will ultimately decide. But nowadays, the market can move in months and weeks, not decades or years. Yeah, that's a good point, Sam. Um, well made as usual. And I, I, th- I think we're at the end of the session today. Um, really enjoyed it. Uh, lots to cover. Do you want to give us a three key takeouts and reflections? So I'd say the three key takeaways from this week's show are, firstly, change. Having that pivot mindset is so critical. It's part of the DNA of marketers, and we should remember that. The second one is optimism believing you can turn a brand around, believing you can return to growth. And we gave some examples there. And then thirdly, it's about progress. The market will evolve. The consumer will evolve. Culture will absolutely evolve. And if you're not part of that progress, you're going to be obsolete. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And talking of being obsolete, uh, episode 28, we're going to talk about your personal brand. Whether you're an entrepreneur, we've we've sort of discussed over the last few episodes about entrepreneurs, or, or whether you're a, a marketeer within a company, we're going to show why having a personal brand matters and uh, give a couple of contrary views as to, as to its role as well within the marketing mix now. Um, it's going to be good, Sam. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to that episode, Chris. I think there's a lot of great insight that we can bring to our audience. So as always, we've probably got to get onto that. So until next week, Chris, have a great week across the pond. Well, that's it for this week's show. We hope you enjoyed it. 
Find more by visiting marketingtransform.com and click on the subscribe link. If you listen via Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud or anything else, then click on follow, subscribe or type Marketing Transformed into search. We're a new show, so please leave us a review, comment or ask a question. We'd love to hear from you. Get in touch at marketingtransformedshow at gmail.com.